I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Climate security is an incredibly loaded term. It's as abstract as it is real and tangible, which is weird in one sense, because there's a whole subgenre of films about climate change. And I'm not just talking about documentaries like An Inconvenient Truth, but also stylized Hollywood movies like The Day After Tomorrow, Snowpiercer, or Geostorm, all offering apocalyptic visions of what climate change might mean to how we live and survive in the future. In the context of international relations and global security, climate change is a threat multiplier. Think about the scramble for energy resources in the Arctic or political friction over water scarcity between India and China today. On a domestic level, though, climate change is a risk multiplier. And we're not just talking about bad Hollywood movie treatments. In fact, its effects increasingly appear around the world in both developed and developing countries. Think about what the construction of massive seawalls represents for cities like Miami, Jakarta, New York City. Or the Thames Barrier, which prevents much of greater London from flooding during high tides and storm surges. But the really hard task isn't construction. It's changing behavior. How do you go about readying a country for the eventuality that they might have to prepare, act, and survive against climate change? And how do you do this in a way that saves as many as possible rather than protecting the interests of the few? Thankfully, the UK Environment Agency spends a significant amount of time working on these issues, from managing flood and coastal risk to warning around the long-term potential of water scarcity. So I sat down with Emma Howard Boyd, chair of the UK Environment Agency, to understand the evolution of UK climate policy, what can be learned from international partners like the Netherlands, and how the agency is framing our preparedness for climate change. Besides being chair of the UK Environment Agency, Emma is an ex-officio board member of the UK Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs and the recently appointed UK Commissioner to the Global Commission on Adaptation. Emma also serves on a number of boards and advisory committees, including Share Action, the Prince's Accounting for Sustainability Project and the Green Finance Institute. Established in 1996, the UK Environment Agency protects and improves the environment and contributes to sustainable development through its role as an environmental regulator, operator, and advisor to national and local governments and businesses. Welcome to the show, Emma. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Great. So I want to start out with your backstory. You've had a really interesting one. You've, you've spent 20 or 25 years in the finance sector. Um, and have made your way to the public sector. Uh, describe that arc. How did that happen? Well, I started off originally in corporate finance, and after a brief um, break, came back and started working in fund management. But in between, I'd spent some time living in the environment, sailing on a boat across the Atlantic, but also working for some environmental NGOs. And it became very clear to me that often the way environmental groups thought about the business community was always as the enemy as opposed to uh, being able to help solve problems. So I uh, found quite early on that um, one of the areas I wanted to uh, get involved with was green finance. 
always thinking about finance through that environmental lens and as my career evolved and I took on various board positions I had the opportunity to put myself forward for appointment and it is a very thorough appointment process uh, going back to formal applications for the Environment Agency Board and I joined the board almost 10 years ago and at each reappointment stage uh, was promoted uh, as a different way of putting it, uh, becoming chair of audit, becoming uh, deputy chair. But for me, it was about the real understanding of the role of environmental regulation and the Environment Agency amongst its core activities is the environmental regulator. And I saw that as being something that could really help me evolve in my understanding of the finance world and vice versa. Had you wanted to make this transition early on in your career in finance? From the private to the public sector? No, this is something that I I suppose the more I've understood about the importance of collaboration, the more I think it's important to understand how the public, the private and indeed the third sector worked together. I think we're going to solve some of the world's biggest problems by collaboration and you need to understand how these different types of organisations intersect. So I think it's more, the more I understood my role in the private sector, the more I could see the importance of really understanding how these other parts of the world, other organisations fit into this big jigsaw. Got it. So we're talking about climate security from a domestic dimension today. Um, it's a very abstract term. What does it mean to you? I think one of the big issues with the whole climate change debate is the complexity and the variability of the terms that are used. So for me, you have to really quite quickly translate it into the fact that we are seeing a change in climate and the risks and the opportunities that that brings and the fact that we need to do what we can to reduce the potential of climate change but at the same time prepare for it. So the whole, the terms that are used around mitigation, adaptation, they don't always land well. Talking about climate security also brings that aspect of this will be important for global security, security of the world. And looking through that lens can often mean that the message lands with a different community of people in a different way. Hmm. Yeah, I always find that the international dimension talks about it as a threat multiplier and the domestic dimension talks about it in terms of resilience or green infrastructure or risk multiplier. How do you think about reframing it? It's become very clear here in England where we have responsibility for flood and coastal risk management that we need to work very closely with local communities. So at the same time, I need to have strategic discussions with local governments, with central government about the responses that we need to better protect our communities. So again, in different circumstances, we need to use different language at a community language where we are responsible for warning and informing people ahead of some of the weather systems that we're now experiencing. We have distilled that language into prepare, act, survive. We have seen from events around the world how serious this is getting. And although we're set up to better protect communities, we can't protect every single community from every type of weather event. So we also need to encourage individuals to think about how they work together as a community to help each other so that 
if they are involved in an event, they can survive as well. I've seen that refrain, uh, prepare, act, survive on your Twitter handle. Um, How long has that been a message that the Environment Agency and you have used to highlight climate security? We really wanted to emphasize that ahead of uh, two two winters ago. It's uh, the more that we've seen the significance of the events, the more we want to encourage people at every level to think about what this might mean for themselves. Ahead of this winter's where often we'll see flooding, we launched a campaign called Just One Thing. So taking the Prepare, Act, Survive message almost to that personal level. If you found yourself at risk of flooding, what is the thing that you would take with you above and beyond your your family to help you survive? We're really at the stage now where we have to make it personal and make it clear that people know what they can do and how they need to act if they find themselves experiencing a flood event. So let's talk about how policy has evolved over the last decade in the UK. How would you characterize it, you know, from the Climate Change Act in 2008 and how that has evolved into uh, uh, adaptation programs and, and better planning? So it's been brilliant, I think, the leadership that the UK has shown Uh, in relation to the Climate Change Act. We've recently been celebrating 10 years since the Climate Change Act was launched. And when I travel to global conferences focusing on climate change, it's often seen as being really significant and something to follow and replicate in other governments by embedding uh, climate targets into law so that our government, no matter which party is leading the government, has to meet those targets over the, over the next um, decades to come. And the UK continues to show leadership, not just on climate change, but last year our Prime Minister launched the UK's 25-year environment plan and where we have an environment bill Um, going through process at the moment. This again is about putting that long-term commitment to dealing with environmental issues into law so that again the fact that the the environment and climate change are so important not just to protecting individuals but to protect the economy and protect um, healthy lifestyles and well-being the fact that it's embedded in law is a, is a very good way of ensuring that it is met and adhered to over time. I want to unpack that a little bit more. You've got a great article in the New Statesman that was, uh, came out last year. It's called Adjusting to the New Normal, Why the World Needs Green Infrastructure. Um, and you talk about how we need to change our expectations of what normal is, how that's changing in terms of uh, more extreme weather. How do you reconcile Um, what is still an early understanding of what that will be against the need to plan on a 25-year basis? How do you reconcile those two factors? I think this is continually evolving, and even the way our funding has been provided to us has changed over recent years. We used to have an annual cycle of um, investment, Recently, uh, and we're partway through it, we were given a five, six-year settlement, which has allowed us to plan for building in resilience and building in um, coastal and other flood defences in a very different way. 
But in many respects, a lot of the attention of recent years has been more towards uh, the mitigation agenda, transitioning to a low-carbon economy, all the work around renewables, energy efficiency. And one of the things we now really understand that we've got to do more of is building in resilience into the way all of our governments, the UK's infrastructure spend is made. But equally, that is relevant globally as well. We've seen a huge uh, development around stranded assets from a low carbon Mm. perspective. I think it's really essential for us to start thinking about infrastructure spend. Are we future-proofing it? Are we making sure that it is low carbon and energy efficient? But also, are we making sure that it's resilient for the climate change that we are going to see and that it won't become stranded in the future because it either floods or melts or washes away or um, falls into the sea because of the sorts of weather events that will batter it, um, depending on what kind of infrastructure we're talking about. How do you convey the urgency around this in different types of infrastructure? In that New Statesman article, you talk about more than 5 million homes at risk to, to flooding, um, which is a real a touch point that, that people can understand. How do you talk about other parts of, of, of government infrastructure, for instance, and their vulnerability? Again, the more we have experienced significant flooding events, the more we've understood that whilst it's absolutely key and our key goal is protecting individuals and lives, that we have to also understand the risk that um, comes to infrastructure from flooding and the vulnerabilities there. So you have to look at utilities, you have to look at critical infrastructure that keeps the economy and homes going, whether that's um, energy, whether that is water use, whether it's our telecoms. And this is where projects over time have emphasised the way different um, infrastructure connects. We work very closely with the National Infrastructure Commission that does work in this space. But I would also argue that some of the work that has been undertaken by the financial regulatory system, the work that Mark Carney kicked off with Michael Bloomberg's support that led to the Task Force on Climate-Related Disclosures, the fact that that work is not just looking at the opportunities, but looking at the risks and the risks that come from the physical side of things means that each business that's listed needs to understand how its business will operate within a changing climate. And I think that will be another helpful tool to joining up all of these dots. So I want to stay on the New Statesman article a little bit more, uh, because in that article, um, you talk a lot about partnerships from an international perspective. And I'm curious to find out what um, you've learned from other countries and what other countries have learned from the UK in terms of knowledge sharing around, you know, areas like resilience or green infrastructure. Well, partnership is a huge theme for us here at the Environment Agency and as well as operating a partnership approach within the UK and England specifically. It's as much about how we are working in partnership with other countries. So a core partner and a country that we work very closely with is the Netherlands. We both 
both countries experienced massive flooding back in the 50s. And over that time, whilst we've evolved different approaches to flooding, we learn a lot from each other. A great example would be in our recent experiences of flooding, Dutch colleagues coming over to learn how we manage incidents. But similarly, we are learning from the Dutch in terms of some of their techniques around nature-based solutions, using sand along the coast to better protect communities. We also set up uh, an organisation called iStorm, and this is a fantastic um, body of civil engineers all involved in storm surge barriers. It involves the Dutch, but it also involves the Americans, the Italians, other representatives from around the world. And this is about how civil engineers learn from each other the latest civil engineering techniques to, again, protect communities from storm surges. Wherever you are in the world now, we're experiencing climate change. And some of the things that I have understood better through a role I recently took on as the UK um, Commissioner for the Global Commission on Adaptation is how parts of the world that have experienced hurricanes recently are now insisting that when those communities are built back, they are built back better. And the insurance industry, working with the local governments there, working with the building regulations, are insisting that new housing, new businesses, new infrastructure is built for the next hurricane rather than the last one. Those are the sorts of things that we need to understand better, learn from each other, and um, through partnership, make sure that we are evolving our thinking around adaptation and resilience quickly, because it's getting ever more urgent. So I want to talk about something else. I want to bring in the social uh, dimension within this conversation. Specifically, how do you see social and distributional factors informing the way that the UK addresses climate change? And I guess what I'm thinking about specifically is um, Ashley Dawson has a book called Extreme Cities, and he points to um, extreme circumstances, the Manhattan U Project. He also points to the Great Garuda Seawall in Jakarta, and these seawalls are displacing people and those people tend to be the poor. And so what you find is, or I guess what my question is, is um, does how we address climate change invariably devolve into the question, who gets saved? I think it's very clear for us here at the Environment Agency that we have to have that at the forefront of our mind all the time, that we are absolutely about saving lives. And key to that is making sure that we are protecting communities, no matter how rich or poor they are. And that has to be built into the very way we design our flood schemes, as well as how we fund them. So we, right down to the way our partnership funding models are um, set out, we have to make sure that within that remit we're protecting people, no matter whether they're part of the rich or the poor. It's about protecting people that comes first. I'm, I'm curious because you've got such a unique perspective of public and private. You know, in this role, do you now have a much greater appreciation for things like natural capital and natural capital accounting, which are, you know, fundamentally erratically different from how 
the financial markets tend to think of of growth and use? I think all the effort that has gone into new ways of accounting is vital for understanding how best to embed environmental sustainability into the way we think about businesses and finance. It's really important that we use new forms of accounting to make sure that we can think about internalising externalities, whether that's pollution incidents, but also recognising through natural capital accounting the role that nature has been playing in dealing with some of those activities and again recognising the value properly of either destroying that nature or indeed building it up. I want to go back to your comment on the private sector um, and and the insurers and and the rest of finance in particular because again you've got a a really unique perspective um, given given your background. Um, What when you think about what the right incentives are to bring in more private investment alongside public investment. Um, I know it's an abstract question again, but, but how, do you, how do you go about thinking, thinking about that question? It's a massive question. I think if uh, we were able to solve it, we'd have solved it by now. And that's why I was really keen to be part of the UK government's Green Finance Task Force. And that was a piece of work facing into our business department, but also our finance department. Initially, it was linked to the UK government's clean growth strategy and brought in a range of different people from the finance sector. And I was very pleased to be part of that as chair of the Environment Agency, because I also was able to bring the importance of the resilience agenda and adaptation to some of that thinking. But over the six months that we worked... Uh, the work streams spiralled out to literally hundreds of interventions that could help drive green finance further forward. It came back to 10 themes. Some of those are being worked on. But I suppose from the years that I have spent on the edges and involved in green finance, it's become really clear to me that the way we're going to solve this is by a number of different interventions because the finance sector, the many different forms of finance, we're talking from credit, shares, loans, mortgages, we're talking about the role of insurance. We need multiple interventions in multiple places to really change the way the system is working Mm. and we've got to make sure that we're addressing all of those urgently. When you think about the finance industry in the broadest respect, um, give a critique. What would be your message to them, not just managers, but asset owners, insurers? What What do they or we need to do more of? For pension funds, I think it's very clear. You are investing on behalf of your beneficiaries for years to come, and therefore, I think it's paramount that you understand the climate risk that is building up within your portfolio. That is where initiatives like the TCFD are incredibly helpful. But I would like to see more pension fund trustees and the fund managers operating on their behalf really put greater emphasis on understanding how businesses are responding to the challenge of climate change and to put increased emphasis on the resilience and adaptation agenda as well. Because I think these are the sorts of things that will 
build up over time and then have the potential to hit. We're already seeing through the figures that the insurance industry are producing that the payouts to businesses are increasing and they're going in one direction alone. So these are the sorts of risks that are featuring incredibly high on um, the World Economic Forum's Global Risk Register. Mm. We need to move from talking about these as issues to responding and taking relevant action. What I find with the finance industry, and it's something that I really kind of struggle to reconcile, is that you know, when we think of sustainable finance, this European, the EU sustainable finance package, you know, you, you have two very different interpretations or understandings of what that means. Um, the EU policymakers are thinking about outcomes. They're thinking about how to use the private sector to invest in renewable infrastructure, resilience. Um, and the finance industry tends to think about it um, in a much more expansive, broader term. It's about ESG you know, scores, environmental, social, and governance scores that are applicable to any sector. You know, it, it's, a, it's more about process rather than outcomes. And I always wonder, from a policy perspective, how do you reconcile those two just fundamentally different interpretations of what sustainable finance actually should mean? I think it is uh, a quite a complicated issue. That is why, again, I welcome different types of regulators coming closer together. So the fact that we've got financial regulators looking at issues such as climate change and environmental issues, we need to make sure that there is a a close understanding with the environmental regulators as as well and that they are operating in, uh, in a way that they understand each other's narrative. One of the things I come back to, because this is so complicated as a systems change, is to revert to what are the sorts of things that you, in your role, whether that's me as chair of the Environment Agency, my involvement in the Environment Agency Pension Fund, what are the things that I can move from thinking and talking about to actually doing? And that is where, again, I would encourage people to really move from that exploring this as an issue to taking real action and being prepared to take a little bit of risk around that because if you look at the scale of what we are facing from climate change we have to move into that territory of taking action. So TCFD the uh, task force for climate related financial disclosure helps move that along in terms of converging around a standard there's still obviously a lot to do um, particularly on the scenario analysis side but when you think about powerful frameworks that are really sort of universally uh, uh, applicable um, besides TCFD um, what others would you point to that, that the finance industry needs to think about? I think one of the thing, the reasons why I like TCFD is it's about building on existing frameworks. And one of the challenges has been is that there have been so many different ways of dealing with this sort of analysis that it becomes complicated at the individual company or sector level. So what I see as important is where you get complementary initiatives on the back of TCFD. So one that I've been involved with through the Environment Agency Pension Fund, but also through the 
uh, Church of England's national investment bodies is something called the Transition Pathway Initiative. And this is using the framework of TCFD to allow asset owners, so again, pension funds, really start understanding how their portfolios are dealing with the transition to a low-carbon economy. I think it would be brilliant if we could explore the same sort of mixture of analysis and then practical understanding to the adaptation agenda. But within a relatively short time frame, the Transition Pathway Initiative has now got something like $9 trillion under management using this framework to understand whether companies within their portfolios are in line with the Paris agreements. So I suppose what I'm encouraging is using existing existing frameworks. Maybe over time, TCFD will also look at other aspects of perhaps delivering on the sustainable development goals, but using overarching frameworks to get better disclosure. But ultimately, this will only add up to something if people start acting on the back of the information that they are receiving. Let's talk about the Global Commission on Adaptation. I mean, it sounds fascinating, the kind of work that you're doing as the UK Commissioner. There are, as I understand it, findings that are released later this year. Um, Are there any preliminary thoughts that you can talk about? Um, Any lessons learned given the past several years of of, uh, near record or record uh, extreme weather, wildfires, you name it? What is really different about the Global Commission on Adaptation is the fact that this is multiple countries at a very senior level coming together to explore climate resilience. And it's too early to really give significant early findings. It's a very large project working at pace But the fact that it is co-chaired by Ban Ki-moon, Bill Gates and Kristalina Georgieva of the World Bank really, to me, is a very strong signal of where climate resilience is now sitting on the global agenda. We also have the UK government leading on the climate resilience agenda, running into this year's global um, summit in New York, It's part of Climate Week. And the two projects are working very closely about amplifying the steps that we all need to take, whether you are in a developed country or a developing country, whether it's about protecting communities from flooding or from heat waves, or indeed looking at agriculture and the supply chain. Uh, Really fantastic that there is this high-level focus on climate resilience The second year is where I think it also gets even more exciting because this is about actions and that's where the early framing of the work is about bringing together as quickly as we can all the strands of work in this space and then very quickly moving on to significant actions. Going back to the IPCC report that was published last year, And the 12 years, the fact that we've got 12 years to really start acting on climate change so that we get in track with 1.5 or 2 degrees, that shows how quickly we've got to start moving on this agenda. 
So I want to finish up with a question about advice. A lot of students, I find, listen to this uh, through the universities we work with and and, uh, a broader audience. And many ask me um, for advice about how to follow their passion in, in some area of sustainability. So when you look back at your life and the choices that you chose uh, that led you from the private sector now to the public sector, when you think more importantly about the demands around skill sets um, that are required to model, for instance, you know, uh, climate resilience over the next 25 years and, and build infrastructure, what advice would you give? Every sector, every job, in my view, will ultimately be touched by climate change. So there's a role for any student now to be thinking about the actions that they can take, both as individuals, but also thinking about the work that they might do. It could be within a large organisation where you go in and are the activist within the organisation working from the inside but whether it's public sector, private sector, whether it's the media, academia we all need to be thinking about how climate change will impact those roles and there's no better time to start thinking about this agenda when you are at university many universities now are looking at how climate change can cross different disciplines so whether you are looking at it from a science perspective or from a social sciences perspective or from studying law there are going to be so many different ways that you will be able to show action on climate change great thank you so it's been fascinating to unpack what climate security represents from a domestic perspective and discuss why building resilience and green infrastructure are vital to addressing the challenges of climate change in the future So I'd like to thank you for your time and views today. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group, here today with Emma Howard-Boyd, chair of the UK Environment Agency. Many thanks for joining us on Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thanks, Emma. Thank you. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us, and special thanks to everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash responsible dash investment, or look for us on iTunes.